the honeysuckle sorbet, it tastes exactly like it smells outside at night in the evening when you walk around and you smell that nice honeysuckle fragrance. It tastes exactly like that, which is floral. It's sweet. I don't know if it smells sweet, but it, it, you think sweet when you smell it, I guess. The first time people taste it, they just get quiet. Go, oh my, you know, it's like, what? <laughs> it really startles people. So it's so much like the way those honeysuckle flowers smell. The late writer Randall Keenan once called Chef Bill Smith a culinary John the Baptist. Bill neither over-explains nor apologizes. He simply offers, he said. Bill's most memorable offerings have taken various forms. He freely offers help. Just ask the Mexican-born kitchen staff who worked with him at Chapel Hill's venerable Crook's Corner or the street people he noticed and befriended along the bike path where he picked honeysuckle and blackberries. As a chef, Bill offered fresh and innovative food to his customers, many of whom were lucky enough to taste his famous honeysuckle sorbet. It was a rite of spring and was just one of the many reasons Bill and Crooks became a legend in Southern cuisine. I was, for 25 years, the head chef at a restaurant here in Chapel Hill called Crook's Corner, and it became more than a restaurant. It was sort of like the drawing room of Chapel Hill, if you would. It had been around since 1982 or three, I think. I, I wasn't there at the beginning of it. I, I came later, but it was there long enough that people would flag me down when I was in the dining room and say, oh, we were here on our first date 20 years ago and things like that. Or they would bring their children to eat there when they were scouting colleges because they had eaten there when they were in school. And so it had a, a place in the city that was um, more than just a restaurant might have in, in, in another town, another time and all that. I retired in 2019 and unfortunately the pandemic shut it down a, a year or so later. So, And people still tell me how much they miss it and, and um, how they hope it opens again and, and on and on. I was there all the time for 25 years. <laughs> it's hard to um, sort out details and stuff. It was like one long shift looking back now. but. Anyway, the city was very fond of it. Welcome to Season 2 of 27 Views, the podcast where we talk to some of our favorite writers in the American South. Here we explore what it means to live in, write about, and wander this corner of the country. From the north banks of the Eno River in Hillsborough, North Carolina, I'm your host, Elizabeth Woodman. Today we visit with Chef Bill Smith. Bill grew up in eastern North Carolina in a family full of great cooks. He came to Chapel Hill for college and left school to pursue his passion. But that wasn't cooking, it was rock and roll. It was the 1970s. He became a co-founder of the then-fledgling music club, The Cat's Cradle. But as Bill tells it, he was terrible at the business side of running a music venue. To keep the club afloat, he sought work elsewhere. He did a stint as a dancer in a Broadway show, but he found more steady ways to supplement his income closer to home by working in restaurant kitchens around Chapel Hill. With his instinctive understanding of good food, his work ethic, his ability to lead a kitchen crew, his inventive nature, Bill's part-time gig eventually became his life's work. 
By the early 1990s, he became chef at the fabled Crook's Corner after the cafe's first chef, Bill Neal, tragically died of AIDS. And there, Bill Smith stayed for over 25 years. He retired in 2019 to travel, write, and spend his evenings listening to music at the still-thriving Cat's Cradle. We visited him one spring morning in his colorful Chapel Hill home, its walls covered with the work of his many artist friends. He talked about being a chef, a writer, and an activist. Bill also read from his piece, Notes from the Bike Path, which was featured in the anthology 27 Views of Chapel Hill, a Southern University Town in Prose and Poetry. A paved bike path connects Carborough with Chapel Hill. Since it parallels train track rather than a street, it seems a tad wild, even though it's right downtown. It is along this trail that I pick blackberries and honeysuckle flowers that I use on the summer menu at Crook's Corner. It's less than a mile long, but the bike path is an interesting bit of territory. It is the place where soccer moms with jogging strollers, the homeless, university students, and assorted drug merchants rub elbows. Generally, they ignore one another, but they all seem to be interested in me and what I'm doing. There's a lot going on, our own version of Midak Alley. An uncommon number of botanists seem to use this path to get from the university to their apartments in Carborough. They often stop their bikes to either question me or to offer scientific tidbits. Did I know, for instance, that I'm picking Javanese honeysuckle, an unwelcomed invader? People who I would probably avoid on Franklin Street chat me up as I move up one side of the path and down the other. For a while, there was a young woman who at first would talk to me in a quiet, pleasant voice, asking about my tasks. Then suddenly she would be consumed by a frightening rage and begin screeching and ripping down flyers stapled to the telephone poles. I haven't seen her this year. Last summer, someone that I will refer to only as C took a particular liking to me. He would narrate as we walked, filling me in on people we passed, telling me sometimes startling stories of life in this no man's land between our towns. I guess that because there was no real road here, there's little supervision by the law. This is probably why I can walk up and down undisturbed drinking beer as I pick. A large rough man, C was really nice, but years of homelessness and drug use had taken their toll. It dawned on me about mid-August that C's interest in me might be romantic in nature. I was right, it turned out. When I told him that I wasn't interested, he quietly gave me a kiss on the cheek and walked off. I've never seen him again either. Years ago, on one of the Spanish-language TV channels, there was a telenovela called Mariana de la Noche. I never saw it, but apparently its logo included a scene where Mariana swept through a flowery landscape by night. The connection was soon made in the crook's kitchen, and I myself became Mariana de la Noche each evening. Modern Spanish is as changeable and adaptable as is English, so now we have a verb, marianar. Voy a marianar means, I'm leaving to pick honeysuckle flowers and drink beer along the bike path. One of the iconic dishes at Cook's Corner was always the shrimp and grits, which right. had been kind of modernized by your predecessor, Bill Neal. But the, the honeysuckle sorbet also became a seasonal event. There were lots of things like that, actually. Um, the shrimp and grits, Bill had grown up in South Carolina, and it is a, a fisherman's breakfast uh, on the coast. And he just thought, well, this is good. Let's see what 
people think of it. And of course, the rest is history. Uh, but there were lots of things. We did that all the time. You can do shrimp and grits. So that's, not, that's not really seasonal. But the honeysuckle sorbet, the persimmon pudding, a lot of the Louisiana things we did at, at Mardi Gras time, cold fried chicken. People would stop me on the street or in the grocery store and say, isn't it time for whatever? <laughs> I saw a honeysuckle flower. Shouldn't you be making, you know, <laughs> or, um, you know, I feel like it's time for that cold fried chicken. And, and uh, so it was sort of flattering, you know, for people to realize people were paying attention to what we did and enjoying it and, and looking forward to it for year after year. We were very seasonal anyway, so. But certainly the, the sorbet was. That was a biggie. And, and actually, because you never knew how big the season was going to be. Sometimes there was a ton. And I remember there was one year there was hardly any. And I couldn't even mention it because people got real whiny about it. And there were tantrums, you know, if there wasn't any. And I'd say, well, there's starting any flowers this year. But actually, if I had like a little bit in the back, I'd be really careful. I would send it out to regulars. But I had to make sure that they didn't let anybody know at tables near them or they would start a fight or something. How did you come to see honeysuckle as a potential ingredient for a, a dessert? There was a big uh, clump of it in the lot next to Crook's Corner. And Gene, my boss, would uh, would say, can't you make something to eat out of that? Because <laughs> it smells so nice and it has pleasant associations for people who grew up in the South particularly. I did try uh, once or twice to simmer it and see if I could get the thing. But what I didn't know is that the heat is the enemy of the fragrance, right? So I read this novel called The Leopard, which is by the Prince of Lampedusa. I became interested in Sicily, and then I found this cookbook about Sicilian food by a woman who quoted the leopard throughout her cookbook. Sametti was her name. Uh, she mentioned uh, jasmine ice that the Arabs had made when they were ruling Sicily. And I don't think it was a recipe. I think she was just talked about it in passing, but she, she mentioned that they would steep the flowers overnight in cold water. And then the next day they would use it to make an, uh, a jasmine ice. So I thought, well, let's try that. And that's what turned out working. So I would pick the flowers and put them in cool water and let them sit in the fridge overnight. And then I would make a sugar syrup of sugar and water, you know, boil it until it, the sugar dissolves, get it cold, and then I would combine the two. And, uh, it, I mean, this took lots of tries to get it to work. And then I would never write down what I had done, of course. So I would tell you, what did you do? And I was like, so finally I wrote it down and got it in place. And by then we were starting to put it on the menu. And then it was like, I had to have it. When If anybody saw honeysuckle flower anywhere in town, I, I got a phone call about it. Regardless of whether honeysuckle sorbet was on the crook's menu, Bill returned to the bike path frequently as a cyclist and as a forager, and he engaged easily with the others along the path. The list of characters who entertain me as I gather flowers this spring has been smaller, although there is still blackberry season to come. There's a nice lady with a West Indian accent who talks very loudly on her cell phone as she walks her dog. Once or twice she has, without warning, hung up her phone and begun talking to me in the same way. No intro or anything, as if we had been talking all along. The first time she startled me, but now I am prepared. There was one couple that I encountered often enough this year to invite observation. They would stride purposefully down the bike trail each evening in a sort of lockstep prance. When they caught sight of me, they seemed to be reminded that there was honeysuckle for the taking, and if they didn't hurry, I might get their portion as well as mine. They would settle in one spot just out of swatting distance, where they would make exaggerated motions of picking and sucking the nectar from the flowers. They would coo to one another at the wonder of this natural serendipity. Unfortunately, they would also spit the used blossoms back into the vines, causing me to avoid the spots where they had been. 
They were a lot more annoying than the guy who would follow me offering a variety of drugs and prostitutes over and over again, as if he had forgotten that we had just talked a minute earlier. While I was picking honeysuckle in the spring, I met a guy who lived in a hut beside the junkyard. We would chat from time to time, and one of our conversations was about tomato sandwiches. It was May, and we were both looking forward to them. We talked about having a tomato sandwich supper in July, but now he is gone. The little lean-to is still there, but no sign of him. I used to see him around town on his bicycle even before we met. I always noticed grown-ups who travel exclusively by bicycle. I hope he's okay. You describe the bike path as sort of a no-man's land between the two towns. I, I mean, it probably isn't that anymore. No, and it's really different now than when I wrote this. Most of the street people are not there anymore. It was a little less uh, traveled. It was a little more isolated. And I think people could go there and, and sort of lay low and not police wouldn't see them and bother them and stuff. So they tended to go there because it was out of the way, but it was near where they, you know, where they were hanging out and stuff. So there was a guy there that had built a little shed to live in there and he had somehow hotwired his television out of a telephone pole. And uh, he was real nice. He was, he, I don't think I ever knew his name, but we, we would chat. Cat's Cradle has opened a gate there out onto it. And at that point, it was the junkyard full of vines and weeds. It was wooded. I think the, the railroad company has come and cleared some of the woods as well. It's really like bicycles constantly all day long and stuff. So I think the street people are not there anymore. They've gone somewhere else. The years brought changes to the bike path, as well as to Crook's Corner. Bill retired, the restaurant was sold, and like many restaurants, it closed its doors when the pandemic hit. Sadly, they remain closed as of this recording in May 2023. But Bill had forged a lasting bond with the Crook's kitchen staff and their families. Just as he had worked to keep them safe during the immigration sweeps of the Trump years, he again helped them when work became scarce throughout the COVID shutdown. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that your kitchen staff had to face in uh, the last years that you were in the kitchen? Yeah, actually, they, um, they're still facing some of them. The people that came to work for me came to North Carolina in the, in the 90s, and they were not desperately poor. They weren't refugees. They weren't fleeing violence or anything at that time. They were mostly young men who knew the wages in the United States were better than they were in Mexico. In Mexico, your, your labor produces nothing, no wealth. So um, th they started showing up. They, um, there's a town in Guanajuato State in Mexico called Celaya. And for some reason, a lot of the guys that are here are from that town. I think maybe one person came and said, come on. And in the meantime, all the restaurants and landscapers and everybody in town were like, oh my God, thank God, because there was a huge labor shortage. You could not find anybody to work. It was before 9-11, so the border was sort of a joke. They would come up and work a couple of years, earn a bunch of money and go back home for three months or whatever, perhaps, and come back to work again. And then when 9-11 happened, everything you know got sort of nasty about foreigners and all that stuff, and, it, and, and the laws began to change. By then, a lot of them had decided to stay here because the drug violence had erupted in Mexico. And it was also more difficult to go back and forth. Um, they began to bring their wives and children up here. And so then the next thing they know, they settled and they had, had children born here and stuff. So now they, well, they're not sure where they belong and they're treated rather badly now. And it's, don't even get me started on this because I... <laughs> First of all, there was all that immigrant beating up in after the 2016 election that they were like, what are you doing? Your people lost your mind. You were, you were glad to see us you know, a few years ago. And I had cooks crying in my kitchen one morning over something they heard on the news. 
But they kept their heads down and, and everybody I know sort of stayed out of harm's way and, and, and got through all that. But then the pandemic came and there's always somebody that's not documented in the family. They were scared to look for the, um, the aid that they were entitled to, some of them. So I'd had this fundraiser going just sort of to run interference for whatever we needed, mainly for the children initially, to get passports for the kids and stuff in case they came home and their parents were deported and we had to figure out what to do and all this. kind. Of, I don't know. It was, it was really dreadful. And uh, I took semi-formal custody of all the children, too, for that very reason. It turns out you can do that in North Carolina. I used Crook's dining room on Monday when we were closed. A bunch of lawyer friends of mine came in and notaries, and we, I got everybody to bring all the children in. We filled out papers which said that should something happen to the parents, that I could intervene with social services. Because I was afraid that somebody was going to come home and their parents were going to, will have been picked up and take, and, you know, and, I, and the kids knew me, so I didn't want them to be in the in homes of people they didn't know and didn't speak Spanish and all this stuff. So happily, I never had to do that. <laughs> I don't know what I would have done, but I figured like I had to be ready for everything, right? So when the pandemic hit, everybody got thrown out of work. Everybody needed money. So I had this fund that I had set up that I had some money in it. And it was a GoFundMe thing. I sent out a note to everyone who contributed and said, uh, I'm just going to start writing rent checks. If anybody objects, let me know and I'll send your money back. But no one did. We paid rent. There was a really nice couple here that I knew from the cradle that came up to me one day. And they said, uh, essentially, they said, we feel really fortunate right now. Do you need any help? And I said, well, I've got three electric bills I'm getting ready to pay. Do you want to do those? And they said, just send us all the electric bills. And they paid for them the whole for many families. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so I had things like that happen. Um, the Lee Initiative in Louisville, which is, uh, Edward Lee's a chef friend of mine there, and he had a sort of a general fundraising organization there that he worked with Makers Mark Whiskey. They gave me $10,000 to buy groceries with. And then Bella Bean Organics in Durham had a Christmas match thing they do every year, and they gave me the match that year, and that was another $10,000. So I had $20,000 to buy groceries with, and now those people paying their electric bills, and then I had enough money to cover people's rent, and we got them all through. And everybody's fine now because now there's nobody to work, and everybody's like, who cares about documentation? I need somebody in the kitchen. So all of a sudden, everybody's got two jobs again, and they'll be fine for a while until the politics shifts, I guess. <laughs> So that's something that sort of took over my life. In like 2016, it started off all of a sudden, the, the kitchen wasn't fun anymore. I was always so worried about everybody. that I mean, we did our job and everything after that, but, but it was, it, it really, ugh, it was awful. A few observations about blackberries. They take on a certain luster when they are just right. It's hard to describe, but imagine something black and translucent. Right after they pass this point, the luster dulls, but they will still be good for a day or so. They will come away in your hand without much effort. If a whole cluster is ripe, put down your pitcher or bowl and hold your open palm beneath it before you start to pick. In clusters, the berries on the bottom ripen first, and the motion of picking can cause them to come off their stem and fall to the ground. June bugs love blackberries and they are dark and shiny too. Sometimes when you reach for a berry, you get a June bug instead. It's like one of those joke shop electric handshake rings. In Spain, the word mora means mulberry, but in Mexico, it has come to mean blackberries. That is the root of my favorite Spanish word, morado, meaning purple, the color of blackberries. It comes up often in pop ballads because it is the color of the bruises that love can leave on the heart. My hands have been morado as well lately because we are having one of the biggest blackberry seasons I can remember.
We have been visiting with chef and writer Bill Smith. He talked about and read from his story, Notes from the Bike Path. It was featured in the anthology 27 Views of Chapel Hill, a Southern University town in prose and poetry, which was published by Eno Publishers. Bill is the retired chef of the now-defunct Crook's Corner, considered by many to have been Chapel Hill's most famous restaurant and one of the most innovative kitchens in the South. Bill is the author of several cookbooks, including Seasoned in the South, Recipes and Stories from Crook's Corner and from Home, and Crabs and Oysters, a Savor the South cookbook. He is the 2022 recipient of the Southern Foodways Alliance Craig Claiborne Lifetime Achievement Award, and he was twice nominated for Best Chef in the U.S. by the James Beard Foundation. In 2011, he won that organization's American Classics Award. Bill was a co-founder of Cat's Cradle Music Club, a place he still frequents. But to really know Bill is to appreciate his deep and abiding humanity. For years, he has devoted much of his life to helping immigrants who were his co-workers in the crook's kitchen. If you would like to hear Bill read his entire story, Notes from the Bike Path from 27 Views of Chapel Hill, you can find a link to the recording on our website at enopublishers.org. That's enopublishers, with an S at the end, dot O-R-G. There on the show notes page for Season 2, Episode 1, you will find a recording of Bill's story and other information about him and about this podcast. The show notes also feature the recipe for Bill's famous honeysuckle sorbet. Enjoy. 27 Views is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Woodman. That's me. Editing and mixing supervision are by Mark Maximoff. Executive producers are Ezra Rawich and Elizabeth Benfee. Music for this episode is entitled Carolina Heart by Heartland Knights. It's available on Soundstripe, and you can find a link to it on our website. 27 Views theme music is from the composition called Cory in the Meadow, written and performed by Bruno Luchran. Please join us next time for more stories and voices of the South on the 27 Views podcast. <laughs>